You can probably guess what we're talking about this morning because it's on the screen unless you're majorly visually impaired. Um, I'll tell you, we are doing a, starting a four-part series on the Trinity. Um, and even if you can't see the screen, um, everything that's up there will probably come out of my mouth. And So as long as one or the other works, um, we'll know what we're doing. Let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who... Even though you were perfect and sufficient for all eternity within that perfect union of the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you delighted to share of yourself, to make yourself known, to create and share of your blessings and that fellowship. Lord, as we look at the Trinity over the next Four weeks, help us to gain a deeper understanding of who you are and your intimate involvement in our lives. That, Lord, that we might be changed to think more deeply about you and more deeply about who we are and more thankful for what you have done and what you are doing in our lives. Uh, help us now in our time together. Teach us, correct us, encourage us and the things that you have revealed in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you weren't here last week, the week just before, or the Sunday just before New Year's, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21, and the theme was New Beginnings. And while so many people at the beginning of the year are thinking about their New Year's resolutions, different things they might begin to do in the New Year, changes they want to adopt, we were encouraged to think about the fact that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. It's a far more important pursuit to find out what it means to be a new creation and specifically to know the God who has made you new, to know what he is like, to know this new creation you have become. We spoke about the way in which people love to look up Ancestry.com to find out what their heritage is, what nations and countries people came from, because part of that defines who we are. But if you're a Christian, you are a child of God. And knowing who your God is defines deeply who you are and how we live within this life. Now, if there's anything by way of connection between the talks in this church, you think, well, last week we were told to really to dig deep into our God, to know him more deeply, that we might know who we are as a child of God. And you might think, I don't know if Steve's made the right connection. Sometimes when you see the word Trinity, you think, oh, no, here comes a really long, boring, complicated, irrelevant sermon. And it's a shame that people would think about that God, as one God, expressed in the loving union of three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. When we begin to think of that as being irrelevant, we are all the more spiritually poor as a result of that. Now the world we live in, we know, is all about political correctness. But there's still some things that seem to escape I noticed an advert for this product on the left when I was down the Gold Coast. McCain's got these man-size microwave meals or Osolo's got their man cans. And in both of those situations, what they mean to 
to communicate is these are bigger than normal. But as much of a man size as they may claim to be, they're not too much that any person can eat. In fact, even a child can eat one of these man-sized meals or drink a man-can. What they mean to say is they're a little bit bigger than normal, but still they're not something too big. They're actually something smaller than us, something that we have control over, something that is smaller than us ourselves. And I fear at times, sometimes our spiritual lives suffer from a man-sized view of God and of the gospel meaning that it might be slightly bigger than ourselves, slightly larger than normal, but minuscule in comparison to the God and the way he has revealed himself to us. Now, goal over these following four weeks is to give you a Trinitarian God-sized view of God, the gospel, and ourselves. The concept of God as Trinity isn't just some information to learn. I say you need to learn certain facts, you need to learn certain ways of explaining things. Our goal is to see how deeply personal and important God as Trinity is to each one of us. So today we're going to look at what, we've got to cover some of the basic information stuff as well as some of the personal stuff. What do we mean by Trinity? What shouldn't we think about the Trinity? How does the Trinity relate to the gospel? And lastly, as we wrap up, Trinity and the Christian life. So what do we mean by Trinity? It's pretty rare to to find a Christian who doesn't believe in the Trinity. Often it's those sort of outsidish, cultish groups that have different views that don't agree with it. It's it's one of those things that we kind of establish of this is biblical Christianity, But amongst those who might believe it, there's also a fair percentage who aren't really sure what it means and whether or not it matters that much to their everyday life. The word trinity is just the joining of two words, tri meaning three, and unity meaning one. It talks about the unity of one God, let's put up a definition, one God who eternally exists in a loving union of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As an eternal union meaning, there was never a point when the Father, Son, or Spirit had a beginning. They have all been one God for all eternity. And I think one of the reasons why we struggle with it so much, particularly in our culture, is we're very much a culture that's very maths and scientific oriented. And we think, how can something be one be three. And while we look for all sorts of comparisons to look around the world, we don't find one. Even our common analogies we tend to use to explain the Trinity to people actually don't explain it maybe as well as we think it does, and we'll look at that a little bit later on. The one thing which is abundantly clear, Old Testament, New Testament, there is one God. Famously in Deuteronomy chapter 6, It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when we get over to the New Testament, that view doesn't change, that there is one God. Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all 
and through all and in all. So there's unity beginning to end. There is one God. But there is development in the New Testament which explains in more detail what this one God is like. Just like now living at the point in history which we live in, we can look back at the Old Testament, we can see the gospel was clearly there, but the people who lived in that time didn't see it as clearly as we do in light of the Jesus event. But now we see how that seed that was there and we see more details that reveal as we came to the New Testament. And it's the same, you can look back, there are glimpses of God as a triunity in the Old Testament that is further explained and given more details into the New Testament. In the following three weeks, we're going to look specifically one sermon on the Father, one on the Son, one on the Holy Spirit. I believe Samuel's doing the Son in two weeks' time. But this here has been the image that's often been used to explain what is meant. Where you see all of them, Father, Son and Spirit, pointing to is God. The Father is God, fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. There's not like 33 and a third percent each shared as though they need to add up together. All 100% God. But then link between the two, the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Spirit, and, and so on. So there is one substance, but there is a distinction of persons. Now when you read through the Bible, you'll see that some have primary functions. They do particular things that others don't do. Like we never talk about the Spirit dying on the cross or the Father dying on the cross. But just because someone does or takes responsibility for one thing more than the other doesn't mean that one has more attributes or one is lesser or greater than the other. Because if one of them had less God attributes or one of them had more God attributes, anything which one of them did not have would be the rule by which you'd say, that one is not God. There is nothing that one of them has that all three of them do not have. Otherwise, they would cease to be God. Even in the structure where there being a father and a son, and we see the way in which the son submits to the father, does not mean that the father's the superior one and the son's the inferior one, just that our God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. It's two equal persons, equally God, where one, for the purpose of order and function, submits to the other. And it's healthy for us to be reminded of that same picture within marriage, the, where it's told, wives, submit to your husband. It's not saying husband, great, wife, inferior. It's the thing of two people, equally human, equally valued in the sight of God, but for the sake of God's order, he puts one in the position of leadership and the other to submit to that leadership. But in that perfect loving union of three, they lacked nothing. There was perfect relationships, perfect fellowship, totally sufficient, didn't need a single thing. It's important for us to remember that. God didn't create because he was lonely or because he needed something to satisfy him. He wasn't bored. He, didn't be, he wasn't lacking as God without creating something. If nothing was ever created, he was still God, perfect in all of his attributes. In the same way, Jesus didn't have to save 
in order to become the perfect son of God. He didn't have to be born into this world to be the perfect son of God. He always has been the perfect son of God, 100% God for all eternity. In the same sense, the Spirit didn't need Pentecost to come in order to become the perfect Holy Spirit of God. For all eternity, this union of three, Father, Son and Spirit, 100% God, distinction of three persons, perfect relationship, totally sufficient, needing nothing. Why is that important? If God needs absolutely nothing, didn't need to do any of the things which he has done, then every single thing that he did to create, to give, is out of the abundance of grace and blessing. Not because he needed people, not because he needed creation, but he is a God who loves to give of himself. In fact, as we look at the gospel a little bit later on, it shows how God extends that beautiful fellowship of three and opens us and invites us into fellowship. Not that we become God in that sense. So if that's how we should think of the Trinity, what are some ways we shouldn't? Because throughout church history and even today, people have varying different views of what the Trinity is. Some will say that Father, Son, Spirit, they must be three gods, but very clearly the Bible says there's one God. We're going to have a look at a couple of them. The main one you'll hear people say when you talk about Trinity, they'll say, Trinity's not even in the Bible. The word Trinity's not in the Bible, they'll say, this is something that men made up in the fourth century. And there's an element of truth to some part of that. The element of truth is the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. I hope that doesn't shock you. But the question is not whether or not it's, the word is found in the Bible. Does it explain something which is in the Bible? Because in a moment I'm going to show you a whole lot of words that we use all the time that explain teaching of the Bible, but the word themselves are not in the Bible. Surprise, surprise, the word Bible's not in the Bible. Missionary is not in the Bible. Evangelism as a word is not in the Bible, although the, to evangelize is. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, atheism, rapture, divinity, incarnation, monotheism. None of those words appear in the Bible, but all of them describe the biblical teaching. And because of that, they become valid words to use. But I want to give you just one introductory sample, certainly in future weeks when we look at the Father, Son and Spirit, we'll look into these things into more depth. But in the beginning of John's Gospel, we see something of the one Godness, but the distinction of person. In the beginning was the Word, and when you get down to verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're talking about Jesus Christ was this Word. The Word was with God, so Jesus was with God. Literally, it says face to face. So again, that intimate, close fellowship, but a distinction of persons between God and the Word. And then it says, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So there is God, there is one substance, but a distinction is made. The Word was not only with God, distinctions of persons, but he was God. And not only was he God by his very nature, 
but he does God things. He was not created, says all things he created, and there's not a single thing that exists that he didn't create. So those who have theories that Jesus was created, this verse tells us very clearly, nothing that was created exists other than what Jesus created. So the cooperation in creating. We also see the cooperation in the Trinity when we see things described about the resurrection. In Acts chapter 2 it says, God raised Jesus from the dead. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I died in my life, I'll take it back up again. In Romans 8 it says, and the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. So what we can see is the word Trinity describes a biblical teaching. And if it does describe the content and the things of the Bible, then it's a valid word to use. But throughout history, some of the false explanations people have come up with, we're just going to look at a couple of them. The first one is that they usually stem from the idea that there's one God, and that's very clear from beginning to end of the Bible, that some would say, well, if there's only one God, then God the Father is the one God, the Son and the Spirit are not God. They will look to Colossians 1.15 and say, well, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, therefore that must mean that Jesus was the first thing that God made. But apart from the fact that word firstborn doesn't mean first created in any sense, and we could look through that, how that word is used throughout the Bible, it speaks about the one with the privileged relationship in, in that relationship. Then they'll say that Jesus was created, the first thing created. It might be a good thing. It might be the son of God in the sense that he was born or made. And then they'll usually talk about the Holy Spirit as being you know, it's a vague description for God's power on display. That's kind of the way the Jehovah's Witness think about it and, and other groups as well. But initially it came forth from a guy named Arius in the 4th century. He was the real big proponent of it. And you may have heard of the Nicene Council or particularly the, the Nicene Creed. When Arius and others were spreading this kind of teaching, they had the very first time they got the worldwide churches together to have a council and think, who is this Jesus? What does the Bible say about who he is? When I said you get an extra bit of Christmas trivia, St. Nicholas was part of that council, the original St. Nicholas. And not only that, when Arius was saying all these false things about Jesus, St. Nicholas punched him in the face. So if you want to have an idea about St. Nicholas at Christmas, think about punching heretics in the face. But don't necessarily do it. They didn't invent the Trinity at this council, but rather when it was being challenged about who is Jesus, they sat together, they looked to the word of God together, and they put together a statement that described what the Bible says about Jesus. And this is what they came up with, which you'll be very familiar with. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So very clear that this Jesus is very God of very God, one substance with the Father, by whom all things are made, who for us and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, was made man. He suffered and the third day rose again, ascended into heaven, and thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Ghost. And you might think, poor old Holy Spirit. All that effort went into talking about Jesus and, just, oh, and in the Holy Ghost. And the reason why they didn't put as much detail into that is because 
the main thing they were defending is who is Jesus and that's why they spent most of their time dealing with that. The second common mistake people make, again, stems from an idea that if God is one, and you can't help but read through the Bible that, that Jesus is God and the Spirit is God, so they have this idea that there's one God who looks kind of like a transformer. He kind of changes between those three different things. He's never all three at once, but like they from all eternity, he was the Father. And then when Jesus came into the world, he became the Son. Then he returned and he became the Father. Then he came back as the Spirit at Pentecost. That's kind of the logic of how they put it together. But not only does that make some passages of the Bible really confusing where, where, the one, where two or three are put together in the same sentence, but also makes a God who has no idea of eternal relationship. And therefore you could get wander off into theories. Maybe he was lonely. Maybe he did need to create something. There's all sorts of different errors people have, but they're the three main ones that people come to. And sadly, some of the ways we try to explain the Trinity to people, we actually demonstrate one of those three examples. Whether we think we're really clever with some water, ice and steam, an egg, or the bloke's favourite, the shampoo, conditioner and body wash three in one. With a shampoo, conditioner, and body wash, I know if you had three hands, you could probably say it's all. You could probably say it's all three, three and one. But effectively, it's one thing which you're using in three different ways. It's like the it's like the transformer god that goes from one to being the other. I think the egg's probably the the dullest of a lot of them because it fails in so many different ways. The shell's not the same as the white. The white's not the same as the egg, so they're not even the same. The, the shell isn't an egg, the white isn't an egg, and the yolk isn't an egg. It would give the, the people the impression that there's different bits of God and you need to have all three of them together to, in order to tally up to 100%. And as much as I have for a long time used the water, steam and ice one, and in some sense it's closest and it's vaguely helpful, the problem is water can't be all three at once. I know someone's going to go and Google and show you the three points of water thing, but it has one thing at one thing at a time. And I think if we want to explain to God what God is like, aren't we doing a disservice to compare him to limited created things? If we want people to know the wonders of who our God is, why don't we rather than compare him to things that misrepresent him, why don't we just say, this is how God has revealed himself? as one God in a loving union of Father, Son and Spirit for all eternity. That's the only way you're going to prevent someone from thinking the wrong things about God. But it's not just about knowing the right stuff, and that's kind of where we've looked at so far. The Trinity is directly personal. It applies to the Gospel, and it applies to our lives. So regularly when it comes to the Gospel, we think, oh, that's the Jesus bit of the Bible. That's about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. That's how salvation happened. However, to view the gospel or to view the concept of salvation as only being about Jesus actually falls dramatically short of the biblical account. Within the loving unity of three persons, there's no lone rangers. 
They don't go off and do their own thing independent of one another. We've seen that example in the resurrection already looked at. But if the only thing that ever happened in redemptive history was for Jesus to die on a cross and be raised again, not a single person would be saved. If the only thing that God did for salvation was Jesus to die on a cross and be raised, nobody would be saved. Now, I imagine that's going to sound weird and a little bit off-putting to some people, and, uh, and I'm not downplaying Jesus' death and his resurrection as being central to the gospel, because it is. But let me explain what I mean. Jesus himself says in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there's no good of having a means of salvation if no one's going to come to it. In our reading that we had before the sermon in Ephesians 1.4, God has chosen people before the foundation of the world. The Father sends his Son into the world. Father didn't send the Son, then we're, not, we're going to be in a bit of trouble. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. Jesus himself says when he's chatting to Nicodemus, unless one is born again or born by the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and in need of a Savior and points us to Jesus. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, reconciles us to God. The Holy Spirit indwells us and guarantees and seals our salvation. So what I mean? Salvation is not a Jesus-only thing. It's not a cross and resurrection only thing, even though that is the central part by which we are reconciled to God. It is a cooperative work of the triune God. We are deeply involved in the Trinity. If you are a Christian, you've had the Trinity, all three, deeply involved in your life. Jesus said this in John 14, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So our Christian salvation comes from the Trinity. It happens through the Trinity and brings us into fellowship with the Trinity. Maybe starting to get the impression your salvation is a little bit bigger than you've been thinking in the past. I'm going to put it to you, your whole life is maybe a little bit bigger than than we have thought, the Christian life. We've seen that Trinity is not irrelevant The gospel depends upon all three. Nor is the ongoing Christian life a matter of just me and Jesus or me and the Holy Spirit, as people will often say. To say that the Trinity is irrelevant is going to make a couple of major mistakes in your Christian life. One, you're going to forget who you are and how you became who you are. And if you forget it, you're also going to forget how and why you do anything in the way in which you live as a Christian. When we go back to our reading that we had before the sermon, in Ephesians 1.3 it says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Then Paul goes out and expands and unpacks that, where you see reference to the, the God who chooses, the Son who redeems, the Holy Spirit who guarantees and seals that salvation. But it's not just a list of things which God does. 
Now, often when I'm doing premarital counselling, uh, it's wonderful having those conversations with a young couple so in love, they're all looking forward to the day. But when they're talking about their day, they're not talking about the day of, you know what, on January 7th, pretending someone's got wedding anniversaries January 7th, I'm going to get someone who makes the best hot dog in the whole world. I don't know if anyone's made that claim of themselves anyway, but I should have made notes. That wasn't the ex- There was no example written down. We don't get excited about just the benefits of the person. We get excited because we get them, not just their perks. And when you enter into a relationship with God, you don't just get his benefits. As wonderful and marvellous as they are, you get God. You have communion with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, now and forever, if you are in Christ. And I think far too often we overlook and forget this. I read a story about a little boy who was looking out the window, watching the clouds and the moon. And his dad says, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm just waiting to see if any of them go behind, if any of the clouds go behind the moon. And the dad asks him, where are the clouds? And he says, oh, in the upper atmosphere. Where's the moon? Oh, it's in outer space. Ah. He's like, I get it. That's not going to happen, is it? The clouds are never going to go behind the moon. He knew all the right information, but as he's looking out the window, he hadn't actually put it together and, and, and made it make sense and fit together. And I think we know a lot of things about the Trinity, but I think sometimes we fail to see and apply it and acknowledge it in everyday life. I want to provide just a couple of examples for your encouragement, which we'll expand on in the future weeks. When you're reading your Bible, you're in fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible we often refer to as as God's Word, which Jesus says all of it points to him, which the Holy Spirit has inspired and takes and illuminates to us that we can understand it and apply it. Do you ever think about that when you're reading your Bible or are you just thinking, oh, I'm reading a bit of Paul, reading a bit of Matthew, Mark, Luke, better say John so, so I don't leave him out. Sometimes we even forget when we're reading the Bible that this is actually God's words. This is the very word of God to us. When we're praying, we are addressing our prayers to God the Father Although there are at least two examples of exceptions where prayers are directed to Jesus in the Bible. But normally we're praying to the Father through Jesus. As we're praying, the Spirit is often prompting us things to bring before God in prayer and sometimes even um, communicating some things from God back to us in the quietness of those moments. We're also told in the Bible that Jesus is there interceding at the right hand of the Father for us. And also, even when we don't know what words to say, it says the Spirit is interceding on our behalf, praying the very perfect will of God for us. When you're praying, you're never just one person sitting in a room, speaking out words to an empty room. There is communion with the Father, Son, and Spirit. And in almost every sphere of Christian life, I do add almost because I originally didn't have almost and I thought someone's going to give me an example and I'm going to be wrong. So I said in almost every sphere of Christian life, the threefold God is at work. We endure hardship 
because we know that God is working all things for our good. Because we know the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And because we know, according to Colossians, Jesus made a public spectacle of all other rule and authority. We share of the gospel, knowing that God has called and chosen people. Because Jesus has sent us on a mission to go share and go and make disciples. That his spirit is convicting, leading people to understanding the goodness of the gospel. We grow in maturity as Christians. Because God, we're told in Romans 8, has predestined that we be conformed or changed to be like Jesus. And that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, to work within us, to transform us, to renew us, to sanctify us. Our God and our gospel is abundantly more than we tend to imagine. And my prayer for us over these coming four weeks is that we would come to a greater understanding a greater experience and that we would enjoy God more as we come to know him more deeply. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we admit that our very small minds struggle with the concept of how you can be one God expressed in three persons and without that being a contradiction. But God, we thank you that you are far more abundantly beyond anything that we could ever think or imagine. God, we thank you that there is beauty in knowing that you didn't need to do a single thing and everything that you do is an expression of your grace, your desire to bless and give of yourself. And we thank you that in your grace, you invite us into that perfect fellowship that you've had for all eternity as Father, Son and Spirit. Lord, may that overwhelm us with thanksgiving for who you are, what you are doing. Help us to see it in the everyday life and be encouraged with the fellowship that we have with you each day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.